So tonight we're actually going to be in James chapter 2, verse number 26. And James chapter 2, verse number 26 is part of a greater passage, which is part of a greater book, which is part of a greater Bible context, if you will. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that here in a little while. So first, I want to ask you the question, have you ever been out and about as a Christian after you got saved and you saw somebody and you're like, I really should talk to that person. I really should go ahead and help this person or whatever the case is. How many people have really felt that? You know, like, hey, I should talk, say, do something, right? How many people have ever not done what they felt like they were supposed to do? You know, if we're honest, pretty much all of us are going to raise our hand to both questions. One, that we've always felt the burden, the draw, the impulse to help somebody. And then the second, there are times where we don't take the action we should, you know. In South Dakota, when we were stationed up there for about three years, there was a lot of homeless people. Now, we were a part of the First Baptist Church in Rapid City, and one thing that they did on a monthly basis was they went to the downtown Rapid City soup kitchen, if you will. They would go ahead and prepare the meal. They would serve the homeless people that came there, and they would do a devotion. And so we went there one time with the church, and it was a huge blessing. If you've never served homeless people, I don't know if you really understand the aspect of gratitude. Because some of the most gracious people I was able to serve and help were the homeless. You know, just being able to receive a free meal, just to be able to talk to these people, looking at them as human beings, not people that are sleeping, whether under a bridge or downtown on a park bench or whatever the case is, just having a conversation with them as normal people. They're so gracious. There's such an aspect of gratitude with them. It was an amazing feeling to be able to serve them in that community. There's plenty of times where there was a Walmart on Stumner Road out there in Rapid City. This is a Walmart that we frequented very frequently, obviously, but there would regularly be a homeless person or a homeless family on the corner. And I think I've really developed the idea to discern a panhandler to a true homeless person because out here in Alabama, we do have a lot of panhandling. And one of the ways I kind of discern it is the fact that their backpack looks a lot more expensive than my backpack. And it's a lot more cleaner than mine as well. But I'm not the judge of that. But out there in South Dakota by this Walmart, there would regularly be a homeless person or a homeless family out there. One thing about my daughter, she has a huge heart. She has a huge servant's heart. And there's plenty of times that Rebecca and Alyssa would go to the McDonald's right there or coming from Walmart. They'd get an extra burger or some food. And they would want to go ahead because they would be there by the stoplight, roll down the window and bless the individual with some food. It is just an amazing feeling and knowing that, you know, my wife and my daughter have done that on a regular basis. Now, there's plenty of times when we have seen the same people, and we felt like we were supposed to do something, but we just didn't. And like I had asked you this evening already, all of us, if we're honest, would have said the same thing. I should have done something, but I didn't. I knew someone was in need, but I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And what I want to talk about tonight is real theological as far as what some people would take this verse in this passage one way, but how we should really understand it in the light of the verse, the surrounding, the book, and the Bible context. 
So our text verse for the evening, for this evening, is going to be James chapter 2, verse number 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I want to talk about dead faith, and I want to talk about living faith. First, I have some of my favorite commentaries up here. So if you want to know what commentaries I use, I reference when I'm trying to do a teaching or preaching, whatever the case is, one of them is by John Wolverd. I like a lot of John Wolverd's writings. I want to go ahead and see what he says about James 2.26. He says, Apart from the evidence of works, faith may be deemed dead. It is not the real thing. True faith continually contributes to spiritual growth and development. So John Walford will take this verse and say that if you don't continually grow spiritually, you don't have true faith and you're destined for hell. Another commentary that I like is William MacDonald. Now, when I say a commentary I like, let me preface it by saying, in general, their teachings and their thoughts are really good. In other verses, not so much. What is William MacDonald? Not James MacDonald from Apologia, but somebody else. Here, the matter is summarized beautifully. James compares faith to the human body. He likens works to the spirit. The body without the spirit is lifeless, useless, valueless. So faith without works is dead, ineffective, worthless. Obviously, it's spurious faith and not genuine saving faith. William MacDonald is another one that interprets this verse as saying, if you are not growing spiritually, you're not a Christian. Again, I do not agree. But let's see what Warren Wiersbe has to say. I love a lot of Warren Wiersbe's writings, a lot of his works. I love his commentary because it's very practical. It's very personal. This is what he says. It is important that each professing Christian examine his own heart and life and make sure he possesses true saving faith, dynamic faith. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Satan is the great deceiver. One of his devices is imitation. If he can convince a person that counterfeit faith is true faith, he has that person in his power. Then he proceeds to list nine questions that people can ask themselves as we examine their hearts to see if we're actually a Christian. Two of those questions, he says, has there been a change in your life? Do you maintain good works or are your works occasional and weak? Do you seek to grow things of the Lord? Can others tell that you have been with Jesus? That is one of the tests. Another test, he says, do you have a desire to share Christ with others or are you ashamed of him? He says, this spiritual inventory, the nine questions, can assist a person in determining his true standing before God. So here, Warren Wiersbe, again, I like a lot of his writings except for this, says, you can know if you have real saving faith if there's a change in your life and you maintain good works. How many of us would say that we maintain good works on a regular basis? A lot of us have trouble in that area. What about this? Do I have a desire to share Christ with others? Would you say your life or even my life has a regular desire to witness and evangelize people on a daily basis? 
There are some commentaries out there, some theologians, some scholars, some biblical writers, preachers, on and on and on, that will take this verse and say, if you're not doing X, Y, or Z, if you're not continually growing, if you're not doing what you're supposed to do when you feel like you're supposed to do it, like I just asked in the beginning of this message, then there's people out there that would say that we're not saved and we're actually on our way to hell. One commentary I love, and I love his interpretation of this verse, is Dr. Tony Evans. He says, The faith of a believer can atrophy, and we can become orthodox corpses unless our faith is put to work. Many of us have, a, have spiritual life, yet we're spiritually sick. We attend church to hear what the great physician has to say and leave feeling good about his prescription. We remain spiritually unhealthy, though, because we don't swallow the medicine. Once we hear God's word, we must act on it to be transformed by it. What Dr. Tony Evans is saying is that a Christian can have spiritual life. They can be a Christian. But there's a lot of times Christians will come to church, they'll hear teachings, they'll hear messages, they'll hear preachings, they'll hear from the Word of God and the Spirit. But yet, with that medicine that they receive, just like a dog, you try to put a pill in a dog's mouth, they have a hard time swallowing it and they spit it back out. And so, what Tony Evans is saying is this verse... People that don't understand the verse, understand the fact that they're a Christian, and that this verse is teaching spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, not genuine salvation, that's the way he is understanding this passage. And it's from that I want to look at and exegete this passage. We looked at three commentaries that said, if you're not doing X, Y, or Z, if you're not helping the person when you feel like you should be helping them, then you don't have faith at all. You need to get right with God, repent, and get saved. And we read one commentary that says, no, this is talking about a type of faith that is useful, a way of growing in spiritual maturity, and to be used of God to help other people, not for true saving faith, but for sanctification. And like I said, I want to expound upon the latter so we can reject the former. First thing, as far as the book of James is concerned, when you're understanding or trying to study any verse or passage, you have got to understand the background, the context. I love what I believe is Greg Coco had said, and I may go on, I might get, get some flack for this, but he says, never read a verse. Think about that. Never read a verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, for behold, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper, give you an expected end, right? That's a verse. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ, which gives me strength, right? So that's another verse. But not understanding the verse in the surrounding context or the passage leads to misunderstanding, which leads to misapplication, with Philippians 4.13, if we take the verse 4.13 and say, I can do everything through Christ because he strengthens me. And if we're playing a game of basketball and you hold that verse and I hold that verse and we both claim that verse, what happens when one of us loses? Then we doubt the character of God. We doubt the faith of ourselves. You know, that's because we read a verse, not a passage, not the surrounding context. And so with that, James chapter 1, verse number 1, we read, 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, who to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. What's the background of this letter? So here, this letter has happened after what's known as the great dispersion. And basically, after the birth of the church and Christianity really exploded, uh, the Jewish people and the Roman government started persecuting uh, the Christians. So what happened with that is they dispersed. You see a very similar picture with Paul and Barnabas when they tried to go out on their second missions trip. They had an argument over John Mark. And so instead of them just having one missions trip, well, Paul and Barnabas went separate ways, and now there were two missions journeys, right? So they were, if you will, dispersed. And so James is writing to 12 tribes, Jewish tribes, which are scattered abroad. So these Christians were scattered out. It's believed they were kicked out of their homes, they lost their jobs, possibly facing execution and martyrdom. They were fearing for their lives, running away. Okay, That's really the basic background of who he's writing to. Another important thing when you're trying to understand a passage of Scripture is who is the audience? Now, we know that James is the author, but who's the audience? I've heard a lot of people use the argument in the book of James where, well, he says brethren 15 times. That's a lot of times in five chapters to say brethren 15 times in five chapters. I think that's a weaker argument because if you look at the Greek word for brethren, it could also be used as countrymen or kinsmen. And based on verse number one, he's writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish people, James being a Jewish person. They could easily argue that he's just writing to Jewish people, not necessarily Jewish Christians. The stronger argument that these people are indeed Christians is found in chapter 2, verse number 7. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? Now, if you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 26, I believe it is, Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. And so at that point, they really adopted that name, if you will. And so here I believe that James is writing to Jewish Christians based upon the worthy name by which they are called. So what's happening? These are Jewish Christians that were scattered abroad because of persecution, and that's who James is writing to. Knowing the background, I want to say this, and then we're going to come back to it. If you're a Christian who was heavily persecuted, running away from home, fearing for your life, trying to save your life for the name of Christ, and then someone comes along and says, God tells me if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, you don't even have faith. Could you imagine saying that to somebody in this situation? What are you talking about? I don't have faith. I just left everything because they saw I'm a Christian. I gave everything up for Christ. And now you want to tell me because I'm not doing X, Y, or Z, I don't even have faith? Are you kidding me? We're going to revisit that, okay? But keep that thought in your mind. So understand the background. Understand the audience. Understand context. There's a lot of different contexts. When you look at trying to interpret Scripture and, and you take what's called a hermeneutics class or basics of biblical interpretation, uh, context is key. Okay, You've heard the saying before, text without context is a pretext to a proof text. And so if you want to really understand Jeremiah 29, 11, if you really want to understand Matthew 7, 15, or James 2, 26, you have got to understand the context. With context, there's various 
areas. Think of a target, okay? So you have your bullseye. How many people shoot darts, throw darts, or have in the past? It's fun. I got a lot of holes in the wall, but it's fun. But on your dartboard, you have a little red dart, a little red dot, and that's the bullseye. You get 50 points for that. Then you have a bigger green one, 25 points, and then it gets out, and you have your little triangular pieces, right? So think of a bullseye, if you will. Think of the red dot as your immediate context. What is happening immediately within this verse, in this passage? I've heard a pastor in South Dakota say, use the 2020 rule. What is 2020? Always read 20 verses before and 20 verses after to get a general idea of the context. So you have your immediate context, then your surrounding context. You go a little broader, but then you have what's known as the book context. As it sounds, the book context is what is the context of which the book of the Bible is written. And so understanding the background, the audience, we can get a a, a theme of this letter. What is James writing about? Remember, James was not written in chapter and verses. I know we all know that. James was written as an entire letter. And so when these people had this letter and when it was read, it was read at one sitting. How many times have you or I took the book of James, five chapters or any book of the Bible, an epistle, and read it in one entire setting? It's really hard for us to do, right? Most often that we don't read it in one setting, but the book of James is supposed to be read in one entire setting. When we read it in its entirety, in the entire setting, we see some things come to life. In James chapter 1, he talks about persecution. Remember, he's writing to Christian believers that were persecuted, that were being run out from their cities, their towns, their areas, their families, things like that. He talks about the trying of your faith worketh patience in chapter 1, verse number 3. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, trials. Then he goes on to chapter 2, and he's talking about playing favorites. Okay, so these are people in their synagogue trying to establish a community of believers, and they're saying, if you see a rich person in there, don't give them the best seat in the house, and you put the poor person in the back or make them your footstool. No, don't play favorites. Don't show partiality. Then you get to chapter 3. In chapter 3, James starts talking about the tongue, about the words, things we say, and how it can be a flame of fire to cause hurt to a lot of people. Then he talks about wisdom. Then he talks about boasting, drawing near to God. He talks about prayer, patience, Everything I just mentioned is practical Christian living topics, period. Nothing that I just mentioned just now that the book of James is talking about through those chapters is really, if you will, spiritual, if you will. It is all practical Christian application. So why do some people try to take a small segment in chapter 2, namely verses 14 through 26, and try to turn it into a soteriological or a passage about spiritual salvation? What we're going to see is just as chapter 1 talking about the trials they're going through, chapter 2 is talking about playing favorites, chapter 3 is talking about talking bad about people, and on and on and on, 
we're going to see this faith without works is dead is not about genuine salvation for eternal life. It is about Christian living. Practical application. There is no reason why James would throw in a spiritual aspect in a totally practical book. The other thing as far as context is concerned, so we have your immediate, your surrounding, your book context, then you have what's known as the Bible context. This is where systematic theology comes into play. How many people like doing jigsaw puzzles? I mean, we tried it in South Dakota. It got to the point to where I would get like a 50-piece puzzle. Rebecca would get like a 300 or a 400-piece puzzle. We'd say, go, and we'd see who can get done fast. And she was done with two before I was halfway done with my little 50-piece, you know, Disney puzzle. I'm horrible at puzzles, okay? But think about systematic theology as far as puzzle pieces. So when you're dealing with salvation or the doctrine of soteriology, or the doctrine of sin and the fallenness of mankind, homarchiology. Think of it as a giant puzzle, where in Scripture, you don't get everything in one book or one passage. There's a little bit in James, there's a little bit here, there's a little bit there. It's like a gigantic puzzle piece that we're putting together. We see the same thing with the coming of Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't have the full revelation that we have of Jesus Christ. There's little bits of pieces that showed up throughout. But the other aspect of systematic theology is when we're studying the doctrines of how does one get eternal life, we look at all the passages that talk about salvation in the Bible, and we put together this puzzle. And when we do that, we see that in Romans chapter 3, verse number 20, Paul says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. We also read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, that man is justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. And you read on and on and on about passages on how one gains eternal life. It's always about faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? But yet, for some reason, people want to insert works into this passage. So, immediate surrounding book Bible context, and then the systematic theology. What does James chapter 2, verse number 26 actually mean? Well, let's read verses 14 through 26, and then we're going to exegete, and then we'll be done for the evening. James chapter 2, verse number 14, God says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? In the scripture which was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. 
Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This passage is one of the most, probably on the top ten, if not the top five, misunderstood, misinterpreted, and therefore misapplied passages within Christianity. So many people have attempted to make this passage turn out to be that if you're not doing these things, your faith is dead and you're not a genuine believer. But is that truly what it means? Well, first, right off the bat, it is fallacious. It is an error to believe that the same word is defined the same way every time it's used. For instance, save or salvation does not always refer to eternal eternity or eternal salvation or eternal life. There's plenty of times within scripture that saved salvation is used in reference to a temporal or a physical uh, judgment to be saved or delivered from that aspect. When we're understanding the book context, remember chapter one is talking about the trials. Chapter 2 is talking about playing favorites. Chapter 3 is talking about wisdom. Chapter 4 is talking about faith. You go on and on and on. We can truly understand this right off the bat as the salvation being spoken of is a, is a physical, temporal salvation, not a salvation for eternal life. Another word we need to really define is this word dead. If the word dead wasn't in this passage, I don't believe we would have much discussion this evening. But the fact that God chose to put the word dead in here leads us to talk about this. The Greek word for dead is nekros. And in the Greek, it brings the idea of in operation, useless or lifeless. And let's look at this, for example. In this passage, in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, James gives us an illustration. James says, if you see a brother or sister naked, they need clothes, they're destitute without food, they're hungry, they're starving, they got, you know, ratty clothes on, and it's cold outside, and one of you says, I'm going to pray for you. But yet, you know you have the things to help them, but you say, I'm, I'm going to pray for you. God's got you, I'm going to pray for you. And yet, God is pulling you to do something, and you don't do it. That, we're being told in verse 17, is a dead faith. So when we're looking at this aspect of a dead faith, understanding the book context, how practical this book is, the fact that these Christians have been persecuted and scattered abroad, this illustration is proving the fact that there are people out there that need help. And if God has provided to you the things to help them, and God is calling you to help them, then we need to help them. If we don't, let's look back at verse 14. What doth it profit? Think about it. The fact that you're saved and a Christian, the fact that I'm a Christian, we weren't saved just to be hermits and live a monastic life. We were saved to be the light to the world. 
so that people could see our good works and glorify God in heaven. And so when we're coming across a situation like this, where we see somebody in need, but we don't help, the mere fact that God has us here on this earth to be a light to others is revealing the fact that our faith isn't helping anybody. And our faith that's rooted in love should be used to love people. And that's really what he's talking about. But then people will say, okay, what about this aspect of Abraham and Rahab? He's saying clearly here that Abraham's justified by sacrificing or attempting to sacrifice Isaac up on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. If we recall that story, Abraham took Isaac. They both walked up to the mountain. But Isaac says something very interesting before he goes up there. He says, me and the lad will come back. How did Abraham know that Isaac was going to come back with him? He had a mission to sacrifice and to kill Isaac because he believed it was the word of God, so he went in obedience. God doesn't call all of us to that test, if you will. Okay, I think Abraham, just like Job, was a specific individual that God knew uh, to show his glory. I could talk much more about that based on Romans 8. But what about this aspect about him taking this action, justifying himself? What many people don't remember is the fact that Abraham was justified in the eyes of God chapters before. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Way before Mount Moriah, Abraham was a Christian. This would have taken place at least 14 years after that incident because for my study, Ishmael was about 14 years old, I want to say, when Isaac was born. And so Abraham had been a Christian, if you will, a believer in Messiah, in God, well before this event. Well, what about Rahab? Scripture says that Rahab was justified by her works when she had took in the spies and sent them out another way. Remember this story? Well, what a lot of people fail to remember is the fact that Rahab had faith in the God of Israel well before that time. Because word was on the street on what God was doing, and she believed God and his working, and trusted God, and she told the spies right away, I know your God can do all these things. She had that faith before, and she acted upon her faith. Both Abraham and Rahab are pictures of those that are living their faith actively, it is affecting people. It is helping people, practically speaking. Now, when he says Abraham was justified by his works, Rahab was justified by her works. Don't forget verse 18. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by, that, by my works. None of this is trying to talk about our justification, our standing right with God and saying, hey, I can prove I'm a Christian by doing works and my relationship with God is good. This is talking about people believing we are justified in the eyes of man. It's a totally different scenario, okay? And so don't fail to remember that. What James chapter 2, verse number 26, faith without works is dead, Understanding it from the immediate surrounding book, Bible context, 
understanding the background, the audience, understanding that James is talking about Christians being persecuted, the trials they're going through, not playing favorites. Again, all practical Christian living application. Verse 14 through 26 is the same practical application about how to love your fellow neighbor. What he's saying in a nutshell, if you were to ask me, if I were writing this, I would say, I know you guys have been persecuted. I know you guys have been chased out of your home. You lost families. You lost your jobs. You're probably so upset right now and you're trying to just survive. Maybe you're trying to stay under a rock so Nero doesn't find you. But don't forget the people out there that need help. Even when you're in your loneliest times and you feel like that there's nobody for you and the world is against you, don't forget you're still my ambassador. That I still told you to love your neighbor as yourself. While they had every right in that time period to shut down and stop helping people benevolently, God was reminding them, love your neighbor as yourself. If you needed help, would you want somebody to help you? That's entirely what 14 through 26 is about. It's not whether you're a genuine Christian. It's not whether your faith is completely dead. It's about, is your faith helping people practically? The mere fact that Jesus Christ came and died for you and me, in that simple faith, we can receive the gift of salvation mere fact, like Pastor Ken had mentioned, that the reason why we haven't been raptured up the moment we chose to believe is because God has a purpose for you in your life now. And God has people in your life that you can reach and touch and help. And like Jesus said, and I've already alluded to in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 16, it says, our good works are to show the goodness of God in heaven. What better way to show the goodness of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the greatness of God than when you're at your worst and you choose to love your neighbor as yourself because you see your neighbor in desperate need? Is your faith living, helping somebody? Or is your faith dead and only helping yourself? That's what he's talking about. So, I just wanted to cover that tonight. It's a favorite passage amongst many within Christianity that again, like Philippians 4.13 and Jeremiah 29.11, a wrong interpretation will lead to a wrong application. There are many people within Christianity today that read this verse and they think two things. Number one, James and Paul are contradicting each other. Paul says it's only by faith, not of works. And James is saying this, so apparently there's a contradiction. That's one thing they think as well. And the other one, they think, well, if I'm not continually doing this, then I'm not a Christian. So that makes your standing with you and God conditional. Are you working for your salvation? Those are the two things that a lot of people within Christianity struggle with in this passage. Number one, it appears they're contradicting each other. And number two, they're placing unrealistic expectations on themselves 
to prove their worthiness to have salvation of God. (laughs) When none of us are worthy at all. And it's only by His grace. And so I encourage you, if you hear this passage used in that light, feel free to help others see this is a completely practical letter. Is your faith helping somebody? What does it even profit? Amen? I mean, it's pretty clear to the point. This is just one of those passages where it shows too much thinking makes a person dull. Okay? And if we just read the letter as it's written, we don't come away with this misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and misapplication. And when we do, we bring ourselves under a bondage that God has never levied upon us. Find the freedom and the free gift of eternal life. Let us pray.